right, all right. I, um, I need to inform you that some of those children most offendedly uh, let their teacher know that they indeed can read. Some of them can. Some of them cannot. But some of them were quite offended. <laughs> so that was pretty funny. Uh, we're continuing our series, Everyday Theology, where we're closing the gap between what we believe on paper and how we live that out in our lives. You know, everyone knows that the world is broken. Deep down, like everybody across cultures, across the world knows that the world is broken. And everyone has their own way of trying to make sense of the world in the way that it is. There are plenty of movies that have told stories about how the world came to be broken, how the world has fallen, how the world has gone wrong. Almost every culture uh, in the world has some myth or some legend about how evil and destruction came into the world. The one that you guys are probably most familiar with is a Greek, is the uh, an old Greek myth, is the legend or the myth of Pandora's box. Pandora was created by Zeus as the first woman and was given all of these gifts, all these talents, all these things, but she was also given this box, and she was told she could never, ever open it. Well, uh, some time goes by, and her curiosity gets the best of her, and she can't help herself any longer, and so she just cracks it a little bit and peeks through. And the moment she cracks open the box, the myths tell us that every vice and toil, war, the necessity to work the ground, isn't that interesting that that was in there? The susten- uh, uh, work the ground for sustenance, every ill and evil of the world comes flying out of the box and the world was never the same. Realizing what she did, Pandora immediately closes the box shut, but it was too late. All those nasty things came out, and there was only one thing that remained in the box, and that was hope. This is how the Greeks understood and made sense of why and how the world came to be broken the way that it is. And so why is it that there are so many stories? Why is it that every culture has the story of how the world came to be so broken? It is because deep down we all know that this is not the way the world is supposed to be. When we look at the world and we see what is going on in the world, we know this is not the way it's supposed to be. That long ago, something went really wrong and that we've all have been suffering the effects ever since. So as we talk about closing the gap on what we believe on paper and how we live that out, today we're going to look at the doctrine of sin. The doctrine of sin. Christianity, like so many other religions and cultures, tells a creation story, but it also tells a false story. It tells a story of how things came to be so wrong. C.S. Lewis said that Christianity is the true myth. Lewis and Tolkien, those guys loved myths. They loved legends. They loved Norse mythology and Greek mythology. Lewis loved those things. When he was an atheist, he didn't believe in Christianity. And Tolkien convinced him that Christianity was the true myth. That it, unlike everything else, was true. That its legends actually happened. Genesis 3 in the Bible is what we're really going to be focused on. tells us this story of a man and a woman who lived in a perfect garden with only one rule. Don't eat from this one tree. You can eat from every tree in the garden, but this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat from this tree. But human curiosity, temptation, the allure of the unknown and the forbidden 
lead them to take the fruit. They listen to the serpent who tempts them, and they eat it. And in this one moment, in this one decision, in this one act, the world is cursed and broken, and every vice and every toil and every bad thing in the world happens after that. This story in Genesis chapter 3, what we call the fall, is the basis or the explanation of why the world has gone wrong. And what we call this as Christians, going against God's command, we call it sin. So what I want to do this morning is give you sort of a quick but yet sort of comprehensive overview of how we understand sin and then give you some of these practical applications of how our understanding of the doctrine of sin should affect how we think and live in the world. So a lot of blanks. If you're filling them out, get ready. Here we go. Number one, sin is missing the mark. Sin is missing the mark. The word sin comes from the Greek word harmatia. Harmatium, which literally means, translated, literally means to miss the mark. It is a, an image or a picture of an archer who has drawn his bow at a bullseye, at a target. And as he looses his arrow, he misses. He misses the bullseye, misses his target, and he's off center. The idea is that the world was made perfect and that everyone in it should continue to be perfect that everyone in the world should continue to hit the bullseye every time, hit sinner, hit perfection every time. But yet, we all miss. We all miss the center. We all aim true, maybe, but fall short of hitting the bullseye. Uh, and so, when we sin, we are missing the mark. We are missing perfection. We are missing our true aim. What we should be aiming at is missing the target. Two, two. sin is rebellion against the rightful king. Sin is rebellion against the rightful king. When Adam and Eve choose to eat the fruit that God told them not to, they were doing much more than just disobeying the rules. They were doing much more than just not listening to what God had told them. In that moment, they were choosing to be their own kings and queens, to serve their own kingdom and rebel against God. When God created them, Adam and Eve, he created, the, he created them as vice regents, that is, little kings and little queens to rule over the garden in God's stead. They were already kings and queens. But when the serpent tempts them, he says to them, God knows that if you eat the fruit, you will be like him. That's what he says in Genesis 3. If you eat, God knows that he, he doesn't want you to eat this fruit because he knows if you eat it, when you eat it, you will become like God. The serpent was saying, look, God's holding out on you. Look, God is holding back from you. He's keeping you from eating this thing because he knows if you eat it, you're going to be like him. But God wants to keep you down. He wants to keep you submissive. He wants to keep you under control. That was the lie. Eating the fruit then is about taking power. It is about taking the reins back from God and taking from God what he's holding back from them. It was about being their own boss, their own king. And that's true every time we sin. When we take and do the things God forbids, when we choose to go down the paths God has said, no, don't walk down, we are effectively staging a coup. We are saying, no, God, this is a rebellion. This is a takeover. This is my kingdom, and I'm the king, and you, do, you don't have authority here. You don't have reign here. I'll do whatever the heck I want to do. We are saying we are the masters of our own dominion. Our own kingdoms that we rule. Every sin is rebellion. Number three, 
Sin is settling for less. Sin is settling for less. When the serpent tempted and tricked Adam and Eve into the fruit, he convinced them that God was holding out of them, right? That there was more to be had. That there was more out there and that God was holding it back. Stuff for just himself and he didn't want them to have it. You see, the devil and and sin always promise us more. Sin always promises us more. It promises to satisfy you, to to quench you. It, it, It promises to be the thing you always wanted. It promises to make you happy. But it never delivers on that promise. You see, the devil told Adam and Eve that if they ate, they would be like God. And in, in that moment, Adam and Eve forgot a fundamental truth. They were already like God. He tempted them with something they already had. They were already created in his image, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. They were already created in his image. They were already like God, and the devil was tempting them to something they already had. But he made them think that if they could get this, it would bring them unlimited and ultimate joy. And so they believe this lie, and in believing the lie, they try to get more, and in the end, they actually get less. See, they tried to get more. They wanted to become like God, even though they already were. They wanted more, but in the end, they actually get less, because they were already like God. But after they sinned, they were less so like God. Before, they had paradise. After, they're kicked out of paradise, and the world is cursed. Before, they have eternal life. After, they have death. You see, sin promised them something, but it never delivered, and it actually gave them something far worse. And isn't that how sin always works? Do you remember the story or the legend of the siren? Those mermaid-like creatures whose voices are so captivating and beautiful that to hear the siren's song has led every sailor who crosses their path to turn the ship a little bit toward that song, and they crash into the island. You might remember this from uh, the Odyssey, that great Greek uh, tragedy, the great Greek poem, where Odysseus uh, makes all of his men plug his ears with beeswax, and they make, he makes them tie him to the mast so that he can hear the siren song without turning toward, it, toward the sirens. Because when you hear their song, it leads to such pleasure and intimacy that you turn and go and crash into the island. And is that not how sin works? That sin sings to the deepest parts of your soul. That sin is a siren song that calls to you. That calls to you and says, I will make you happy. I will deliver you. I will promise you these things. But it never does. And it always gives us something worse instead. But yet the crazy thing is, we've crashed into the island. We've given in to the siren. Lived to see another day. And yet when we hear it, we believe it again. When we hear the promise of sin, we believe it again, and we go after it again. Even though it fails us over and over and over again, we continue to believe that it will this next time make us happy. If we just have a little bit more of that thing, it'll make us happy. But it's still lying to us, and yet still we hold on to hope that the song of the sirens, the song of sin, will not this time lead us to destruction, but will lead us to joy. But the story always ends the same way. All the while... All the while, while we do this little dance with sin, God is offering us a family. God is offering us abundant life. He's offering us fulfillment and meaning and purpose and blessing and to be like him again. 
And yet we look at our sin and we say, yeah, God, I know you're offering me abundant life and joy and eternal life and, and, and all of these things, but the porn on my computer is just so much better. God, I know you're offering me all of these great, wonderful things, abundant life and joy and forgiveness and I'll be a child in your family. But cheating on my taxes is a little bit better. I know you're offering me all of these things, but whatever is a little bit better. We believe the lie. It is the foolishness of Edmund from Narnia who goes out and meets the white witch and doesn't see that this is an evil person who wants to destroy him and his family. But instead, his eyes are fixed on what? The nastiest candy alive, Turkish delight. It looks so good, but if you've ever had it, man, that junk is gross. But he liked it, and so he was fixated on the Turkish delight, and he couldn't see the truth right in front of him. But he and his siblings were in danger, and so he gives in foolishly. When we sin, we are saying, God, I know you designed me in the world to, for, for enjoyment to live this way, but I think my way is better. It's like going to a Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. So somebody gave you a gift card and you can afford to go. Some of you are like, well, I don't know what that is. But it's like going to this really fancy steakhouse, and when the waiter comes... And he lays out, here's our specials. We've got souffle and all these fancy words. You're like, can you translate that for me? I just want to, you know, whatever. It's like he says that, here's the menu. And you look at him and you say, actually, you think you could whip me up a PB&J? And he just looks at you befuddled. You're like, yeah, you know, I don't think you really know what you're talking about. man. But man, if you could get me a PB&J, that would hit the spot. That's how sin is. God is offering this. And we're like, nah, I'll take this. It is always, when we sin, we believe the lie, we always settle for less. Four, all sin is idolatry. All sin is idolatry. Martin Luther famously said that whenever we break any of the commandments, we first break the first commandment. That is, the first commandment is, you know, that we shall have no other gods before you. 1 John 5.21, John writes and he's at the end of his letter and he says, his final word to the, the church in this letter, he says, little children, keep yourself from idols. By that, John wasn't saying to the other Christians, hey, make sure you're not bowing down to Molech or to Zeus or Aphrodite or some other statue of some god, some worshiping some false god. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, keep yourself, little children, from the idols of the heart. An idol is a way of talking about sin that has so captured your heart that it's become like a God to you. Something that you think will save you and deliver you. It is something that says to you, only I can make you happy. Only I can save you. Only I can deliver you. And the thing about idols is they're not often usually bad things. You know, when we think about sin, we think about bad things, right? Like gluttony and lust and envy and, and, and sloth. We think about uh, adultery and murder and lying. That's what we think about. But idols are not bad things. Idols are good things that we turn into ultimate things. They are good things that we turn into gods. And so we take uh, and we say, man, you know what? If only I could find someone to love me and get married and have a white picket fence and a red front door and a tire swing in the front yard. If I could just have that image, that's my image of the good life. If I could get that, I'll be happy. And there's nothing wrong with all those things. But when you, when you sit your happiness and your joy and your meaning and your purpose on that idea, on that vision of the good life, that has ceased to be a good thing and it's become an ultimate thing. It's become a God you worship. If you think, man, if only I could have more money, if only I could hit the lottery, if, if only I could be popular, only be famous, if only I could be in charge, 
If only people liked me. If only I had this or only I had that. Whatever that is for you. Man, if I could just have this thing. If people just respected me. And you lift that from a good thing to a thing that you think will finally give you peace in your life. It's become an idol. It's become a god. These good things we turn into ultimate things. Functional saviors. There was a dad who lived in Louisville, Kentucky who was a high-level executive at the Yum Center Corporation, you know, KFC and all those restaurants. And he was really, really busy with work all the time, right? He's a high-level executive at the at Yum Corporation. And, and so because of that, he was really, really, business, really, really busy, and he worked uh, all the time. And one day, his wife took uh, their couple kids to the zoo, and they had a good time at the zoo. And they got home. One of those kids drew a picture of their time together at the zoo. And uh, when the dad got home late that night, he... Uh, was getting ready to tuck his kids into bed, and he saw the picture that his little girl had drawn, and he looked at it, and he said, hey, tell me about this picture, and well, hey, here's mommy, and, and here's the giraffe we saw, and here's the elephant we saw, and, and here's, here's my brother, and here's my other brother, and uh, yeah, that's the picture, and, and th- the dad noticed that up in the corner, kind of off to the side, there was like a, almost like a jail cell looking thing, like a, a little stick figure over here in the corner. Everything else kind of had a lot of detail, but this kind of was just kind of scratched out into the corner. And the dad said, hey, who, what's this? Who's this? He said, oh, daddy, that's you at work where you always are. And in that moment, that dad realized that he had committed the, the modern version of child sacrifice. That he did not lay his child on some altar to some god, but he had did lay his child on the altar of his career. Sacrificing his children for the sake of his career. The next day, that dad went to work and made drastic changes in order to be home more. You see, sin isn't always bad things. Idols aren't bad things. Working hard isn't a bad thing. It's actually a created good thing that God commands us to do. These things are really good things, but we've made them ultimate things and things that we think will save us, make us happy. And slowly, those things become our gods. And what happens, to, what happens when you have a God? You serve that God. You sacrifice to that God. You worship that God. And we all in this room do that without realizing it to all sorts of little idols in your heart every day. Most of our issues as Christians are not blatant sins. I mean, sometimes, yes. But often... There are these idols and these gods that go unchecked, things we live for, our quests for happiness, not realizing we're worshiping these idols instead of looking to God for our true source of joy. Five, sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. You see, sin itself is harmful to you, yes. Sin is settling for less. It is believing a lie. It is, it, it is all kinds of bad things. It's missing the mark. It's serving your own kingdom. It is all those things, but even beyond it, It has great, grave consequences in your life. Sin is so much more than a random, made-up list of rules that we're supposed to follow. And if you don't follow this random rules, we call it sin. Sin is more like a parent who tells their kid, Honey, you are allergic to peanuts, so do not eat that Snickers bar in the pantry that I got. That's for your brother. Don't eat it. You're allergic to peanuts. I have another dessert for you later that you'll love, but don't eat the Snickers. And the kid, thinking their parent is holding out on them and just doesn't want them to have it and is just a fun sucker and doesn't want anything to do with that. And they know better than their parent. They, what do they do? They sneak into the pantry. They get the Snickers and eat it. And what begins to happen? But their skin turns red. Their throat begins to swell, and they can't breathe. And mom has to rush in with an EpiPen to save their life. That is how sin works. And that has consequences, not just in the immediate, but pervasive, continual future consequences. 
Sin results in guilt, like literal legal guilt and alienation from God for one. You have real legal guilt that without Jesus, we are handcuffed and indicted and brought before the judge. Our case laid clearly out that we are guilty as charged before the judge of the world. The sentence, the Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. The sentence and the conviction is guilty and death. There's eternal separation from the source of all joy and meaning and of life and abundance. Have you ever gotten into a fight with someone? Have you ever gotten into a fight with someone uh, and, and, and you really hurt each other? Said things that shouldn't have been said? What happened because of that? What happened after that fight you got in? That you and that person now had distance between you. There was this awkward tension. Maybe you ignored one another. Maybe you stewed in anger. But because of the sin, because of how you failed them, because of whatever, now the relationship has changed. There's a problem, there's distance, there's friction, there's damage in the relationship. And the same thing is true with us and God. Our sin is not just against one another. Our sin is not just wrong. Our sin is against God. And every lie and every lustful thought, every gossip, every idol is against him. And they alter our relationship with God. Our sin takes us from being on good terms with God to on trial, and it severs the relationship. There is guilt and alienation from God. It also results in shame. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they immediately knew they were naked and they were ashamed. They felt shame for the first time. You see, shame is that feeling you have when you're caught. When you're caught and doing something wrong and you're looking for every way out. You're scrambling and panicking inside and you wonder, can I lie my way out? Can I run my way out? Can I sweep it under the rug? Can I ignore it? Can I pretend it's not there? And it's that feeling that all eyes are on you, that you're caught, and there's this deep feeling of insecurity, deep feeling of shame, of pain. It is a feeling of failure and of inadequacy and unbelonging, and it makes you think that this big thing has made you all alone. When we, when we sin, we feel the shame of it. And because of our sin, we can also do no spiritual good on our own. Hebrews 11.6 says, and without faith, it is impossible. Not, it doesn't say possible. Impossible. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You see, you in your own strength, in your own ability, cannot make God happy with you. You cannot make him smile or pleased with you. Our sin has so corrupted us. And our best efforts, the Bible says in Isaiah, are filthy rags. Sin at its core is this wrecking ball, this wrecking ball that w destroys everything it touches. It promises joy but brings only pain and remorse. But like a dog to vomit, we go back to it again and again and again, thinking this time the vomit will taste good, thinking this time it will make us happy. This time it won't bring us shame. This time it won't let us down. This time it will be enough. This time it will make me happy, but it only brings more hurt. It destroys your relationships with one another. It destroys your body. It destroys your mind, your soul, your career, your life. It promises life but only brings temporary fleeting pleasure. It does bring pleasure, but it's temporary and fleeting. And it leaves you with chaos, hurt, and shame. So that's kind of like the briefest doctrine of sin ever. That's, but let's try to apply this. Let's try to apply this. How does our understanding of sin change the way we think, feel, do, and look, and look at the world? Well, one, one way we apply this 
is that sin has left the world cursed. Sin has left the world cursed, and we've got to look at the world through the right glasses, through the right lenses to see the world in the right way. I grew up in church, and for my youngest years, I believed God existed. I was baptized at 10 years old. I knew the truth, but that truth had not transformed my heart. I knew the truth in my mind, but my heart was still not transformed. When I was 15 years old, I went to youth camp, and something changed. God saved me. I was transformed. My rebellious heart was made new. And there was all kinds of emotions that went through that, uh, all kinds of, you know, changes. But the, the craziest thing that happened for me is that when I came home from camp, I don't know exactly what it was that hit me, but I remember driving down the road, and for the first time, I saw the world through new eyes, through a new lens. And that everywhere around me, I could see brokenness in my own life and everywhere else. Everyone honking at each other, going down the road, everywhere. I saw the world was broken. And my heart in that moment knew that this place wasn't my home. That this place was broken. It was cursed. Everything was broken. Imagine with me for a moment Snow White. Think of this fairy tale Snow White hanging out in the enchanted forest. The breeze flowing through the air, and it's almost as if the wind itself is making music. The birds fly up and land on her shoulders and sing in her ears. Rabbits paw at her legs. Deer come up and eat out of her hand. Every leaf is vibrant green, and every flower in full bloom. And the smell is so strong, it almost knocks you over with its sweetness. The dew glistens off the leaves, and Everything is beautiful and everything is right. When all of a sudden this black fog in the distance comes rolling through. And as the black fog passes, it leaves in its wake shriveled up leaves, blooms on the ground. Animals run and hide in fear. The smells are gone, the singing is gone, the beauty is gone. And left in the wake of the fog is nothing but death, decay, and darkness. And that is what has happened to our world. This is what has happened, not just in fairy tales, but in reality. Sin is so much more than our individual failings. Sin is so much more than just missing the mark. Sin is a curse in the world, where every bad and broken thing in the world is a result of the curse of sin. So every stillborn baby, every cancer diagnosis, every hurricane or tornado, every thorn on every flower... Every genetic disorder and every buried loved one is the result of the curse of sin. And don't misunderstand me. I don't mean that these things are a direct result of some individual sin that you committed. I'm not saying that you lied and therefore your dog died. I'm saying that from the very beginning of Adam's sin, the world has been under, that fog has come through our world and everything has been broken ever since. That the world was thrust into this curse. This matters. The, the, the Christians seeing the world this way matters. When we see problems, whether that problem is cancer or homelessness, whether that problem is drug addiction or divorce or gender confusion or racism or corruption in some organization or whatever, we know that the root of the problem is sin. We know that sin is pervasive and that it's touched everything, that there's not one square inch in all of creation that the curse has not perverted and distorted and destroyed. And so because of that, we can know that sin is the cause of destroyed lives. We can know that sin is the cause of destroyed relationships. 
We can know that sin is the cause of systems and institutions and governments that are corrupt and broken. We can know because the curse of sin has broken everything. And because we know the problem, we can work toward the solution. We can point toward the answer. When you get the problem wrong, you get the answer wrong too. And so when you try to diagnose every issue as some other problem, you'll, you'll, mess, you'll get the wrong answer. But when you understand that the world is broken and cursed, it leads us to the right answers. You see, when you see the world through Christian glasses, we see sin, a sin-tinted world. We see the world under a curse, and seeing the world rightly matters for what you do next. Second, life is a war. Y'all may not know this about me, but I have a phobia, all right? I'm being vulnerable by sharing this with you, so don't, don't use this against me, all right? But I got a phobia. And it's not necessarily because I've had any kind of traumatic experience with this, uh, but yet still, I am terrified of alligators, all right? Now, this may be because there was one time, part of this one time where uh, we were in North Carolina at this river uh, kind of near the ocean, and we're, my buddy's taking me out tubing, and, and we're going, and, and we're on the boat getting ready to tube, and he's like, oh, yeah, keep your eye out for alligators. I was like, what? In the water? This water that I'm about to get in? He's like, yeah, you know, they won't bother you, but just, you know, keep an eye out. I ain't never held onto a tube so tightly in my life. Can you imagine falling off that thing and, like, coming up and, like, seeing one just coming at you? <laughs> um. So I've kind of got this fear of alligators. Part of the reason I live in Ohio, all right? Ain't no alligators here. Well, anyway, I saw this video the other day uh, where this guy is in this clear kayak. Kayak is generous, okay? It's like just plastic, and it's got like pool noodles on the sides. All right, this thing is rickety. And he's in this thing, and he's like chilling, and all of a sudden, this alli- he like beaches on top of an alligator. He's like, and the, the head is right there. I mean, it's like, hey, buddy. Right? And so he's, he's on top of this alligator, and he's filming it, like, and he's laughing. He's just, like, having a good, he's like, look at this guy. Look at him. And this is not like some baby alligator. It's like full-grown alligator. I'm, like, getting palpitations and high blood pressure watching this thing, okay? Because I'm thinking, like, do you take your oar and go, well, bam, like, stab it in the eye. Like, what do you do? But he's just laughing it up, having this good time. And that is exactly how we treat our sin sometimes. Which is really the evidence that we do not take what we believe about sin and live it out. Because if we understood sin as it really is, how it affects us, how it destroys us in our relationships in our lives, we wouldn't laugh and poke fun at it. Uh, When it pokes its head up in our life, we would stab it in the eye. We would put it to death. We would fight tooth and claw to kill it. And the fact that we treat our sin with kid gloves is evidence that we don't understand the threat that it is. This dude sitting on top of an alligator should have been freaking out because all that thing had to do was arch its back. He falls in the water and he's, he's supper. And when we treat sin with kid gloves, it does the same for us. It destroys us and we don't even realize it. Listen to Colossians 3 verse 5. Put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you? Don't, he doesn't say coddle. He doesn't say manage. Put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which leads to idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. 
Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. If you are in Christ, you have to understand there is a war being waged inside of you right now. That inside of you is the old man and the new man. The old, sinful, broken, fallen nature and the new creation, the redeemed self, the future self. And those two guys don't like each other. They want different things. And there is a war happening, a battle being waged over your soul, over your joy, over your effectiveness for working in the kingdom. There's a war being waged over your heart every moment of every day. And if you do not realize that this war is happening, well, let me tell you, you're losing. If you don't see sin as the enemy, as the villain that is trying to destroy you, then you won't be fighting it. You won't be fighting it, but it'll be fighting you. And you'll never see it coming. Sin is the enemy. Life is a war. Point three, sin blinds us. 1 Corinthians 4, 4 says, In their case, the God of this world, it's talking about Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He has blinded them to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Sin blinds us. Do you remember that story Jesus told, that example Jesus gives? It is, you know, don't pick the speck out of your brother's eye when there's a log in your eye. Y'all remember that? Like, can you imagine that? Like, you got a log sticking out of your eye. Oh, let's do this way. There's a log sticking out of your eye, and you're trying to, like, get the speck out of somebody else's, and you're just, like, punching them in the face with the log. Jesus says, don't, don't be worried about the little speck in your brother's eye. First, get this giant gaping log out of your own eye. The whole point of this is that sometimes we have these huge sin issues, these huge faults, these huge problems that are like a log sticking out of our eye, and yet we are blinded to the giant gaping log in our life, and but yet... We can see the speck in that person's eye way over there and call it out. Hey, man, get that speck out of there. Stop that. Quit that. Are you crazy? And we become so hypercritical of that person missing the giant gaping thing in our own life. See, sin blinds us to our own shortcomings. We can justify every shortcoming of ours. We can make excuses. We can sweep it under the rug. We, under, we, we, we know we give, uh, you know, excuses. Well, this is why I had to do it that way. Well, God will understand you. It's not that big a deal. Da, 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 da. We can make every excuse in the book for ourselves, but when it comes to other people, there's no excuse. There's no grace, no patience, no time. Get rid of that speck. <laughs> for me, I picture, y'all, y'all remember, I remember in high school watching these, you know, videos about, like, don't, don't smoke or whatever. And, and remember, I'd always show in this lady who had, her, had the hole cut out right here. She's got like this little metal plate in here, and she's got her cigarette and, you know, smoking through. She's had lung cancer, throat cancer, but she's still smoking in here. I, I imagine that lady like getting on to her grandkids for eating too much sugar. It's like, maybe you ought to deal with your thing first, right? Our doctrine of sin should give us changed hearts, and it should open our eyes to see. It should help us to see truly, to see our sin as it is. And not excuse it, not sweep it under the rug, and it should help us see other people's sin as it really is. And to approach them with compassion and not contempt. Four, sin addicts us. One of my favorite quotes about sin that I find kind of insightful and also kind of scary. And it's really kind of a warning. And I don't know who this originates with, so I can't credit anybody. But it says this. Sin takes you further than you want to go. 
keeps you longer than you wanted to stay and costs you more than you want to pay. Sin takes you further than you wanted to go, keeps you longer than you wanted to stay, and costs you more than you wanted to pay. It works like this. Have you ever walked into a casino and you said, you know what, I got $100, I'm going to spend this $100. And that's all I'm going to spend, I'm going to walk out when this is over. And you walk in a little bit and you feel the rush of victory, you, get, you know, you, you, you won some craps or slots or whatever, and you go in there and you hit it, and you just think, maybe deep down I could hit it big. Deep down, maybe, you know, I could be the one to change my life forever and hit the jackpot. And you keep playing, and your $100 is gone, and you're supposed to walk out, but then you think, man, just one more hand, just one more pull. What's, what's another dollar? What's another, what's another 20? We'll just do 20 more dollars. And you do that, and you keep going, and you keep going, and all of a sudden, you've lost 500 you've lost $1,000, and you walk out thinking, how did I get here? How did I get here? Well, sin always takes you further than you wanted to go. You only wanted to go $100, but it always takes you further because it's always promising more. It's always alluring and calling and guaranteeing you more. It always takes you further than you want to go. It always costs you more than you want to pay. It always keeps you longer. How many people have gotten into a relationship and maybe a Christian relationship for the first time and said, okay, you know, we're both Christians and we're in this new, uh, you know, boyfriend and girlfriend, we're in this new relationship now. We're going to draw our physical sexual line right here. We're not going to go past this line. This is where we think is godliness and what we should do. We're not going to go past that line. And then a couple months in, you're like, well, we just go a little bit past it. New line right here. I, we messed that line with new line. Okay, well, okay, new line. Right? And you find yourself baby stepping all the way over here. And then you look and you go, how did we get here? How did we get all the way over there? We, set, we drew a line right here. How did we get there? Because each time you just push a little bit further, a little bit further, a little bit further. Because sin takes you, always takes you further than you want to go. It never is saying, hey, just this and that's enough. Just this, that's enough. It's always saying, how about a little bit more? How about a little bit more? How about a little bit more? Until you find yourself way over there and you're like, how did I get there? It was one little step at a time. You see, sin is addicting. It's addicting because it's fun, right? But it's just a fleeting, temporary fun. It doesn't fulfill you. It just promises to fulfill you. It promises to make you happy. It doesn't really make you happy. And we go back to that well again and again and drink again and again, only getting thirstier, like drinking salt water from the ocean, thinking it will refresh us. It only worsens your thirst, and yet still we drink it. As we understand this about sin, it should cause us to take seriously the fight, to fight tooth and claw, knowing that it's addiction, knowing that it wants to force us to come back, knowing that it wants to wreck our lives. We have to know it will addict us and fight it. Five, without a doctrine of sin, there can be no love or grace. Without a doctrine of sin, there can be no love or grace of God. Without Genesis 3, without a doctrine of sin, without a knowledge and understanding that the world is cursed and broken, we are all guilty before God. Without that knowledge, there is no love of God, no grace, no good news. See, there are a lot of people today who want to talk about God's love and they want to talk about God's kindness and want to talk about all of these things. Well, they want to talk about God's good vibes and love without talking about sin. But if you remove the idea of sin... You also remove the idea of God's love. Because we cannot understand the reality and the fullness of what God's love is without an understanding of sin. It all it does is cheapen God's love and makes his love mere sentimental, words without substance. Because God's love is displayed for us. Not in that he loved you while you had all your crap together. Not in that he loved you while you were all clean and shiny. He loved you. 
when you were despicable. He loved you when you were a sinner. He loved you when you were broken and dirty. He loved you all the way to the cross. That Jesus goes and he gives his life to be tortured, to be beaten, to receive the wrath of God poured out on him. Instead of you, he takes the wrath for you. The whole cup of it poured out. For every lie, for every addiction, for every mistake, for everything in your life. He takes it. And his love is displayed and proven and shown in this one act. That he paid an infinite price in order to secure you into his family. That his love overcame your sin. That his love overcame death itself. That his love overcame your failures and your mistakes and your addictions and your shame. That his love overcomes your greatest problems. And he does it through dying, through spilling his blood. And in so doing, reversing the curse of sin, removing the guilt of sin, removing your shame. And making you whole. Without a doctrine of sin, you, can have, you cannot have a doctrine of the love of God that actually carries any weight and means anything. Without a doctrine of sin, we can never have a safe place to bring our baggage to a God of love who can deal with all of our failures. And we can know that he'll deal with us rightly and justly and with love. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread. And he told his disciples to take and eat it, for this was his body. It was a picture of his body broken for them. And then he took a cup and he, of wine and he passed it out. And he told them all to drink of it. He said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. We take this gospel meal, this Lord's Supper, as a Christian family. We take this meal as Christians remembering sin's price, remembering sin's curse, and remembering the cost of what it took in order for our sin to be dealt with. So let me be clear. If you have not professed faith in Jesus as your King, as your Lord, as your Savior, if, that, if you've not done that, we're all going to get up in a minute and go grab these elements and come back and, and eat them. Don't you do it. You just hang out in your chair. This isn't for you. Because his blood has not covered your sin, his body wasn't broken for you, if you've not trusted in him. And so do that. And so while we all get up and sing and go get this stuff, if you've not trusted in Jesus, I'm going to stand right up here. You just come up and tell me. Let's talk about how this free gift can be yours. But if you do belong to Jesus, we're going to get up in a moment as we sing this song. As soon as the song starts, you guys get up. There's four stations, one in each corner. You'll grab the bread, go grab the juice, and take it on your own. Come bring it back to your seat, pray over it, whatever you want to do, take it. And as you take it, remember the bitterness of your sin. Remember the cost of your sin was the son of God's death. Remember that his love is what drove him to the cross in order that he might set the world and you right again. And if you don't know Jesus, don't take a hold of these elements. Come take a hold of Christ so that your biggest problem, the sin in your life, can finally have the answer and the solution it needs. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we are reminded that our sin is more complicated than just little mistakes here and there. We understand that sin goes a little deeper than just disobedience here or there. Father, we understand that sin addicts us. We understand that sin is rebellion against the king. 
we understand that sin is idolatry and serving other gods. Father, we understand all these things, but yet still it gets its clutches in us. And we feel so addicted and so trapped and so consumed by things that should be so little and so easy to overcome. Father, this morning for those in this room who, who follow you, but, but they are trapped in some cycle, some addiction, some, some sin habit, and they can't seem to overcome it. God, would you send them your spirit in such a way today that you would sever their ties with the entanglement of this sin? Would you break the hold that it has over their lives? Would you help them to come find somebody, whether that be me or a trusted friend, and confess this sin to them so that they might not have to walk this path alone? Father, would you put an end to the sin habits of our lives and instead make Jesus essential? And Father, for those in this room who may believe in God or may believe that there is a God or may be religious in some way or may not know you at all and not be religious at all, God, this morning would you show them that the greatest problem in their life isn't that they need a promotion, it isn't that they need to clean up a little bit or act a little bit better, their biggest problem isn't that they need to try to be a better person, their biggest problem is that sin has wrecked their life and that the only solution is to come to Jesus as Savior so that he can wash it all away. And that anything short of that leads to hell. But that you offer this gift freely. You've paid for it in full. All we must do is come accept it. Come take it. Come grasp it. Father, help us to respond the way we need to. As we sing this song, feel free to stand up, come and grab a cracker and some juice and take it on your own when you're ready. If you don't know Jesus, come grab me and let's talk about what it means to follow him. God, give us the strength to follow you and however we need. In Jesus' name we pray. All people said, amen. Let's stand together.